Revelation chapter 1, we're looking at verses 7 and 8 tonight. The Bible says, Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him. And all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him, even so, amen. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is, and which was, and which is to come, the Almighty. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. Father, we thank you for your precious word. Help us, dear God, as we seek to uh, rightly divide it. Lord, I pray that you give us wisdom, discernment. Pray that all things that are said and done would be honoring to you. And Lord, I just pray, dear God, that you would help us now as we dive into this great book, dear Lord. Help us to be comforted, uh, those that of us that are saved. Help us to be convicted, Lord God, those that are lost. And Lord, I just pray, dear God, your hand of grace. In Jesus' name, amen. As we're looking here again, Revelation chapter 1, uh, verses 7 and 8. This book is is one of the most important books in all of Scripture. Uh, and reason being is because it tells us uh, how this thing is going to end. It tells us how God is going to end us. Now, it is commonly misunderstood. It is, uh, uh, depending on who you read behind, depending on what you study, uh, many people are very intimidated by this book and, and walk away from it as a whole. This book is actually one of the easiest to divide. And we're going to look at it. Now that doesn't mean, please don't misunderstand me, this is not one of the easiest to dive into because it is, it's almost inexhaustible on the details. Of, but it is very easy to divide this book. All right? It can be divided in. Uh, there's a there's very strict set of numbers that go by. It's a very strict set of guidelines. Uh, what we see here, one of the easiest ways. All right? We're going to divide it into sections of three there. And we'll do that over the next several weeks. But one of the easiest ways. All right? Circle verse 19 of chapter 1. The Bible says right there, Write these things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. And the, uh, there's the division of the book. The things which, uh, which have, that thou hast seen, being past. The things which are, being present. And the things which shall be hereafter, being future to come. Now, when we look here, Revelation chapters 1 through 3 deal with the churches. Right? You have the seven churches that are being talked about. Those were seven literal churches that were that existed in what is referred to as Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. They were not all of the churches there, uh, but they were seven churches that existed, uh, literal churches that were there. Uh, they are also seven representative churches. They represent uh, the church from the time of uh, Pentecost to the time of the rapture there. And we'll see that as we dive into the seven churches there. We'll look at that later on in greater detail. Uh, but those are the things which are past, dealing with uh, the things that, that thou hast seen there, chapters 1 through 3, uh, and, and up to the present there, the modern day church, the church of Laodicea, uh, which is what's called the apostate church. That is the direction we are moving to right now. All right, apostasy, uh, what that means is a willing departure from the truth. Remember, it has to be a willing departure to somebody that has heard the truth, that has known the truth, and yet denies the truth. Their greatest example of an apostate would be Judas Iscariot. Judas walked with Christ, he heard the message of Christ, he willingly rejected Christ there. That is an apostate. Now, as you get to chapter 4... You have an introduction there of the things which shall be there, the things which are coming, and that is dealing with the rapture of the church. You have the 24 elders that are before the throne of God. Remember, it is now the scene is now transferred from earth, brought into heaven. Those 24 elders are a representation of the church. You have the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles, which make up together uh, the combination there makes up the church. That's a representation of the church before them. From chapters 5... Really, uh, the, the latter part of chapter 5, all the way through chapter 19, the church is not mentioned. 
were not talked about. Why? We are in the presence of God. We are with the Lord Jesus Christ. The rapture has already taken place. What is going on that we look at is what is referred to as the tribulation period. You have the seven year period, the first three and a half years being a false peace, the last three and a half years being a broken covenant. That is what is referred to as the great tribulation. That is what starts uh, what we call the abomination of desolations. It's mentioned in the book of Daniel and also in the book of Matthew what that phrase means. What is being spoken of there when it talks about the abomination of desolations is the time when the Antichrist breaks that false treaty of peace, uh, no longer allows the Jews to worship and to sacrifice according to their law, sets up his own image in the temple and forces them uh, to worship that image. That's when we start to get into the mark of the beast and all those things, the martyrs and the persecution that goes on in great detail. All right. Those are all from uh, chapter about, uh, the latter part of chapter 5, beginning of chapter 6, all the way through chapter 19. The church is not mentioned again until we are coming back with the Lord Jesus Christ as His bride. Now what takes place is a parallel. Time-wise is a parallel. While the tribulation is going on here, a seven-year period, what is referred to as the 70th week of Daniel. Or the time of Jacob's trouble is another reference that's used in the Old Testament. What is taking place parallel, simultaneously in heaven, is what we refer to as the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now in a Jewish custom... A marriage, a wedding ceremony was not like you and I think of where we go to the wedding, it's it's a quick ceremony and then the reception afterward. This was a week-long process. A week in Scripture is representative of seven years. So there you have the marriage supper of the Lamb simultaneously taking place. Uh, That would be what's called the Bema Seat of the Judgment Seat of Christ where the Christian is judged for their works, not their sins. Our sins are paid for. That's referenced in 1 Corinthians 3. Where he says there that our works shall be tried by fire. Wood, hay, and stubble shall be burned. Gold, silver, and precious stones shall remain there. That's a a trying of our works there. That's the Bema Seat of Christ there. That is a completely separate judgment from the great white throne judgment. The great white throne judgment is for the lost. Saved people will not be a part of that. Okay, So we're seeing here, once we start to divide these things, and once we start to put them in right order, then they start to come together... We don't see, uh, uh, you see there's a a very common misconception when it talks about uh, the sheep on one hand and the goats on the other. That's not talking about the saved and the lost at the same judgment. Again, two completely separate judgments. Now, we will get into that. We're going to take our time with it. Uh, We're not going to rush through this book. We'll take our time verse by verse and go through this. But again, as we begin to look at this, what we should see, And what we can see from these two verses, as I'll point out in just a minute, is an overview. Verse 7 and 8 here of chapter 1 give an overview of the next 22 chapters. Of the remaining uh, remainder of the book there. We see that it is glorious for the saint. This is something that is uh, exciting, it's thrilling to the saint. It is terrifying to the sinner. It is glorious to the saint. It is grievous to the sinner. That's what we're going to see here, uh, the distinction that is being used. Now, in verse number 7, the first part, we see here uh, the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. There it says, Behold, uh, He cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see Him. Understand something. This is not the rapture. Okay, This is different from the rapture. The, ra- the, the revelation of Jesus Christ, or the return of Christ, the second coming of Christ, what we refer to is in two parts. We have the rapture that we read about in 1 Thessalonians 4, where the Bible says that at the trump of God, 
we're called up in the twinkling of an eye, in the moment we're, we're brought before God there, and we meet him where? In the clouds. We meet him in the air. Nowhere in scripture will you see any reference to the entire world being able to see or to recognize the rapture. It will be so fast. There will be a great, uh, there will be great chaos. There will be great confusion. Uh, there will be those that are saved that are sitting and the next moment they're gone. And they're in the presence of the Lord. And it will happen literally in the twinkling of an eye. Uh, the, the scholars have debated how quick that is. But it will be one moment here. The next gone is what we know. And we will be brought into the presence of God. What we are talking about here is the second part of, that, uh, of his, uh, the second coming there. Which is referred to as the revelation or the return of Christ. The difference between the two of them. How you can distinguish between the two. The rapture, we meet him in the air. The return of Christ to the revelation, he literally puts his foot back on the ground. He will walk through that eastern gate of Jerusalem. He will set up his rule and reign. He literally touches that foot back down on the ground there. It is a literal, physical return of Christ. Just as he was literally born uh, in Bethlehem in that manger. Just as he literally walked as a human baby there. uh, Grew into a young man. uh, uh, Gave his life as a sacrificial lamb. All of that is literal. The fact that he came the first time, he will come again the second time. That's that's what we need to keep distinguished there between the two of them. The rapture is in the clouds. The the revelation is when he puts his foot on the ground there, the return. Now, the fact that this is spoken of in present tense when it says, Behold, he cometh with clouds there. uh, It shows a, a future so certain to be fulfilled that it's spoken of as if it was already done. When God says he's going to do something, many times in Scripture, though it is still future, he speaks of it as if it is already complete. I'll give you an example. Revelation 13, 8. Jesus Christ, the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Before God had ever uh, uh, created Adam, before breath had ever been uh, breathed into his nostrils and life had ever ever come into that body, uh, that they knew in the sovereignty of God that man was going to sin, uh, that Adam was going to fall, that they were going to need a Redeemer. And it was spoken of as if it was already done. Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, Genesis uh, 22 there where it says, My son, God will provide himself a lamb there. All of these things are spoken of with such certainty that they were, uh, in the mind of God, they were already done. When Jesus cried out, it is finished on the cross, that is a Greek word there, one word, it is the word tetelestai. What it means is paid in full. Already done. It gives not only, it's not only a banker's term, but it is also an artist's term there. And what it means there is if you, can, if you think of an artist when he has that blank canvas before him and he has not yet put a single stroke of the brush onto that canvas, but in his mind he knows what he's going to paint. In the mind of that artist, it's already mapped out there and he knows what he's going to start doing, but he's not yet put that first brush stroke on there. That's what it's talking about when it said it is finished there. Christ knew what was going to be done. The redemption of man was already paid for. Now we have not yet been raptured, but in the mind of God it was already done. It was finished. It was complete. That's why Christ can be seated on the right hand of the Father there. Uh, the right hand signifies a royalty, a crowning there, a, p- a position of great authority there. The fact that He's seated signifies a completion. The fact that it's done there. Uh, if you look in the Old Testament, you can study all through the Old Testament, you will never see one time where the priest sat down. His work was never done. Constantly on his feet there. Constantly walking. So we're seeing here again uh, what is being spoken of is so sure in the mind of God. 
so true there that he speaks of it as if it has already happened, though it is yet future there. That's the sovereignty of God there. Friends, you and I can say, uh, tomorrow I'm going to do this. Uh, to, uh, next week I'm going to do that. We can make plans. And we should, that's a good thing. But we can't be certain that those plans will be carried out. We don't know if something's going to come and hinder us. We don't know if something's going to deter us. I can say, hey, uh, next week I plan on going to this place. I could be sick next week. I could, be, uh, I could have a phone call that I need to be somewhere else. I have no idea. But in the mind of God, God's sovereign. And He knows what He is going to do there. So He can say it as if it is already done. Now, uh, as we see here again... Looking at the return of Christ, I want you to know, uh, when we see that return there, he says, Behold, he cometh with clouds. Uh, clouds in Scripture there are always symbolic of the presence of God. We have many examples of that all throughout Scripture there. When we look, I'll give you several verses. Daniel 7 and verse number 13, it says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven. In Matthew 24 and verse number 30, Matthew 24 and 25 are tribulation chapters there. They shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds there. Uh, again, that's referenced in, in several of the verses there. Uh, we look there at Exodus when, uh, when um, God had delivered Israel out of Egypt. He led them by a pillar of cloud. That cloud signified the presence of God. When we look in Acts chapter number 1 and verse number 8 there after Christ, when He ascended up, in, excuse me, in verse number 9 there, when He ascended up there, uh, we read in verse number 9, and when He had spoken these things, while they beheld, He was taken up and a cloud received Him out of their sight. Friends, just as He came, that cloud took Him out. Just as that cloud brought Him up, the ascension, so when He returns, He will return in that cloud there, in both the rapture and the return. Then when we speak about that rapture there, uh, we'll be caught up in, uh, together in the clouds, and so shall we meet the Lord in the air there. That's what we're looking for. That cloud was always a symbol uh, of the presence of God there. And He says, Behold, He cometh with the clouds there. Again, it's talking about that presence of God. He comes there and He is coming with that presence of God. He's coming, a revealing there that He comes. Uh, we see that return there. We see also uh, the revealing there. And every eye shall see Him. Again, this is distinct from the rapture. When you look at the rapture, only the child of God recognizes it. Only the saved recognize it. The lost are left behind. We read on in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 8-12. through 12. Where it says that those have had, that have heard the gospel and refused it, after the rapture, says God will send them strong delusion that they shall believe a lie. They will have confusion. They will have misunderstanding. You say, preacher, why would God do that? Because remember, at the rapture, the age of grace is over. And the time of judgment is now coming. Now remember, right now, Jesus presents Himself as Savior. During the tribulation time, Jesus presents Himself as Judge. There's a big difference. Right now, He is merciful and inviting and gracious there. When that time comes, and that, that last soul is saved, and that, that, uh, that, that rapture takes place, that grace, that mercy, that love is going to be changed over into judgment. Right. And you say, preacher, why is that? Because the Bible goes on again, Second Thessalonians says, because they had pleasure in unrighteousness. They chose sin over salvation. They chose sin over the Savior. And Christ says, alright, enough is enough. The time of judgment is at hand. Now we look, and all throughout Scripture, we see that God gives an extended period of God's grace, an extended period of time of grace. Noah's Ark was 120 years. One of the most beautiful studies in typology. When you look at Noah's Ark, there you have three key players. 
you have a man by the name of Enoch, you have a man by the name of, of uh, Methuselah, and then you have Noah. The name Methuselah, what it means is, when, it, when he passes, it shall come. What it's talking about, when Methuselah died, the judgment of God was going to come, Now that was Noah's grandfather. Right? It's no coincidence that Methuselah lived to be the oldest man in the world, 969 years. God gave an extended period of grace for these people to repent. 120 years that Noah built that ark there in order for them to have time to repent there. Enoch is a picture of the church there being raptured. He's translated. He was not. He was at one moment there and then he was not. He was brought into the presence of God. Noah is a type of the Jew that is preserved during the tribulation. Those that are uh, one of the 144,000 that are sealed there. Again, Methuselah, that that oldest man to live there, uh, once he left, once he died, the judgment came. God gave that man, it's, it's no coincidence that the one who the judgment pinned on was the oldest man in the world. The Bible says God is not slack concerning His promises as some men count slack, but is long-suffering to us word, not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. God gives grace, but when that grace is rejected, when that grace is refused, there has to be judgment that comes. Remember, God extended that ark and opened the door of the ark to whosoever would come. But only eight got in and the rest perished. Was it because God forced them out? Absolutely not. It was because they refused God. He would have saved them had they would have come. He would have protected them. No doubt Noah, when he stood out there in 120 years laboring, building that ark, no doubt they had come and they had asked what he was doing. They had an opportunity. No doubt he shared what he was doing. He shared the message of God, and yet they refused it there. That's the same thing with this revealing. It says, every eye shall see him. When we look there, Zechariah 14 and verse number 4, and his feet shall stand that day upon the Mount of Olives there. Again, standing upon the Mount of Olives there. This is a literal return of Christ after the tribulation. But I want you to look here. It says, every eye shall see him. When he comes back and puts his foot down on that ground in Israel, on that Mount of Olives, and he walks through that eastern gate, that is the center. uh, Jerusalem will then become the center focal point of the world. Now you say, preacher, how is it that every every eye in the world is going to be able to see Christ? That's impossible. No, friends, look at what we live in today. We live in an age of technology today, right? God is able to make a way. We have uh, uh, technology that absolutely mind-blowing with things. We can see things on the other side of the planet, uh, on the other side of the world in real time. It will not be hard for what we have to be able to see Christ, for every person to be able to see Christ. There, there will be a revealing and they'll be able to see Him. Not only do we see the return of Christ there, but we see the response to Christ. Look at it. And they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him, even so, amen. Notice the witness. And they also which pierced him. Now remember, and this is, you can say that I'm being nitpicky, but this is biblical. When you hear someone talk about the scars in Jesus, and many times they sing about his nail scarred hands. Friends, that's, that sounds good, but it's wrong. Reason we know that is because a scar is something that is healed over. His hands are pierced. We know that because he told Thomas, he said, take your finger and put it inside my hand. You can't do that with a scar. Take your hand and put it in my side. Remember in Luke 24, on the road to Emmaus, when they were walking 
They didn't recognize Christ. They didn't. He, it says he expounded unto them from the prophets, from Moses all the way through the prophets about the uh, about Christ, about uh, his sacrificial death, his rising again, his death, burial, and resurrection. He expounded to them the scriptures. It means he explained it to them. When he went to go on and walk past, they compelled him to come in and eat there. And when he blessed the food. Then they recognized Him. You say, preacher, was it because of the way He prayed? No, it's because they saw the piercings in His hand. When He blessed that food there, they saw those piercings and it was a testimony as to who it was there. And their hearts burned within them. They recognized that it was Christ there in Zechariah 12 and verse number 10. The Bible says this, looking at Zechariah 12 and verse number 10, Zechariah, one of the away, tremendous Old Testament book dealing with Christ there and His return. But it says, And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the spirit of grace and of supplication, and they shall look upon Me whom they have pierced. And they shall mourn for Him as one mourneth for His only Son and shall be in bitterness for Him as one that is in bitterness for His firstborn. The Jews are going to look And they are going to see those nail-pierced hands. And they are going to remember all the suffering that that nation has gone through. That it was unnecessary had they received Christ. If they would have believed that Jesus was the Messiah, they would not have had to go through that suffering. But they're going to see those nail-pierced hands. And they're going to be in bitterness. They're going to be in broken heart. They're going to recognize the fact that they suffered unnecessarily for such a great length of time simply because they refuse Christ there. And again, this is going to be at the end of the tribulation. This is going to be something uh, that they've gone through even more by that time. But they'll see there those pierced hands. And they'll recognize that. That'll be a witness to them. That'll be a testimony to them. Not only the witness, but a wailing. And all the kindreds of the earth shall wail because of Him. The word wail literally means to beat upon one's breast in grief there. To beat upon one's chest repeatedly in grief. It was a a symbol in Israelite culture of great mourning there. We read about uh, the the publican and the Pharisee that were praying in the temple. The Pharisee said, Oh God, I thank you that I'm not like the rest of these people. I I tithe twice, so I had this, that, and the other. I thank you. I'm I'm not like these people. I'm not even like that publican over there. And he stood as close as he could and he exalted himself. And that publican wouldn't even lift up his head. He just beat upon his chest and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now that wailing that we talk about, the word wail here, right? this is not a symbol of repentance. Right? They are not repenting here. They are wailing because it is a time of judgment. These are the Gentiles that have refused Christ. These are the ones that have rejected Him. And when He comes back, remember the first time He came, He came as a lamb for the slaughter. The second time He comes as a lion to rule. He will come as a king. He'll come in great power and great authority. They're going to see a judge come. And it is going to absolutely terrify them. Because they're going to recognize Christ in righteousness and in power and in judgment. Their grace is going to be gone and judgment is going to come and they will wail because of the coming judgment that is awaiting them. This is something that should, again, uh, this is a book that should be very comforting to the child of God. But it should be very terrifying to the sinner. They will wail there as, as they see God and they recognize Him and they see Christ there. They, they will notice. They, they will see that that time has passed, that that opportunity has passed, and they will recognize Him as that judge. Now, to put this in perspective for just a minute, 
As we get into these verses in just a minute, the writer, the, the, uh, the human instrument that God used to pen this book is John the Beloved. Right? The, the, the author of the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and this book here, Revelation. This man was the one who Christ called, the, the, the disciple whom Jesus loved is how he was referred to many times. This is the one who laid his head on the very breast of the Lord Jesus Christ and heard his heartbeat. Yet when he sees him in great power and great glory and he sees, uh, sees him revealed with his majesty, unrobed in that majesty, John falls down as if he were dead. It is such a majesty, such a power, such a sovereignty to Christ there that even John, the beloved, his own apostle, his own disciple, when he sees him, he falls down and the life is literally taken out of his body. Can you imagine how much worse it's going to be for the lost who are unprepared? You and I today, friends, I, I hear so many people say, Oh, preacher, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God about this, I'm going to ask God. No, you're not. You are going to fall flat on your face and be in absolute astonishment at the glory of God. Yeah. And everything that you ever suffered for the Lord Jesus Christ, you're going to forget all about it because it'll be a distant memory. And as that song says, it'll be worth every mile. It'll be worth every trial. We're going to fall down at His feet as if we were dead. We're going to thank Him for saving us in His majesty and glory there. Not only do we see the, the return of Christ and the response to Christ, but I want you to notice last of all tonight, we see the reign of Christ. We're going to try and finish this up. Verse number 8. Notice the proclamation. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord. The word Alpha and Omega, first and last of the Greek alphabet. All right, alpha being the first, omega being the last letters of the Greek alphabet. What are you saying? Just as you can take the English alphabet and you can spell out any message that you want to spell out with those 26 letters, so Christ is saying, I am everything that you could possibly need. He speaks of His sovereignty. When we look there and He says, uh, I am, that is speaking of His omnipresence. The fact that He is everywhere at one time. He is in our hearts. He is in our lives. He is ruling. He is watching over everything at one time. There is no detail. There is nothing done in the dark that God does not see. There is nothing done over on this side of the world. David himself said, If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. That's his omnipresence. He says, Alpha and Omega there. That's speaking of his omniscience. He's all-knowing. Everything, there is nothing that has ever been revealed to God. God has never had to learn anything. There's never been anything that's ever uh, been taught to God. He's never had to seek counsel of anyone else. He is sovereign in everything. He knows every detail, the end from the beginning. That's omniscience. And it says, which is, which was, and which is to come. When we look at verse number 8, uh, and which is to come there, that is uh, the Almighty. What that's speaking of is His omnipotence. He's all-powerful. Which is, which was, and which is to come. Which means present, which is, which was past eternity past, which is to come eternity future. He was, is, and always will be God. There's never going to be a time when Christ is not sovereign, is not powerful, is not holy. There's never going to be a time when God is not God, is what he is saying there. That's speaking of his omnipotence, his power there. Not only do we see the proclamation that is made, but last of all tonight we see the power that is talked about. Again, which is, which was, and which is to come the Almighty there. Uh, the God of the past, which was, the God of the present, which is, the God of the predicting, uh, which is to come there. He knows all things. Now, as we look here, 
I'll close out with this thing. This is a uh, duplication. This is a, another speaking there of verse number four. All right, this, this is a, a, a similar proclamation to verse number four there that we read there. Verse number four was God the Father speaking. Verse number eight is God the Son. You say, preacher, does that make a big difference? It's huge. And the reason being, it shows the, the fact that Christ is deity. It is speaking of the fact that Christ is God. All right? there is, uh, Christ is not a creation. Christ is not a, a, an, an angel. Christ is not a, a spirit. Christ is God. He is the perfect person, second person of the Trinity, and He is co-equal with God. Just as much God as God the Father and God the Holy Spirit there. And this proclamation, Him making this exact same declaration, speaks of the fact that He is God there. Now, these two verses, these two verses, again, speak comfort for the Christian, but speak condemnation for the lost. This is an overview of what we're looking at when we see the entire book there. It is a book of God uh, bringing us into grace and into glory, us taking us over and us being brought into the, uh, and being made into the image of God there. It is a, a picture of us being taken out of this world, raptured and being brought into God's presence, but it is also a picture of Christ. It is a testimony of Christ coming as judge. Both of those things are just as, as true today. He is Savior right now. He is merciful right now. He is gracious right now because this is the age of grace. But when that rapture takes place and that, uh, that when, when Christ comes and sets His foot down on that land, when He walks down that Mount of Olives and comes through that eastern gate, friends, He is not coming as a sacrificial lamb. He is coming as the sovereign lion, the king, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Amen. And He will rule and reign forevermore. Friends, if you are saved tonight, thank God that we get to be a part of that. Hey. Thank God that we get to come. When we, talk, when we read about His return, His coming, the Bible says we come back with Him as His bride. We come beside Him as His bride and we're set up and we rule and reign with Christ as His bride. But if you're lost tonight, that ought to strike fear into your heart. Because when He comes, there will be wailing. There will be fear. There will be judgment that comes there. Friends, this is a book again for the saved that is comforting, for the lost that is condemning. God help us as we dive into this that we study to show ourselves approved and that we rightly divide the word of truth. Let's all stand in our heads bowed and eyes closed.